the, 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 the host here is Jeremy Hobson. Can I say shit now? Yes, I can. <gasps> Slow ahead. I can go slower, Ed. Come on down and chump some of this shit. You're gonna need a bigger boat. This is the Hobcast. This is the Hobcast. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back. If you've been here before, this is episode 12 of the Hobcast. And I realized that there has been a strong bias in this podcast for the first 11 episodes, really, uh, a bias toward land-based topics, whether they be Afghanistan, the economy, COVID-19, music, the arts, all of the Hobcasts up until now have been about the land. So today, I'm going to fix that, and I'm going to do it because we're going to talk about the oceans and sharks, and I will say this Hobcast has been in the works even before the New York Times came out with its huge story about sharks. But we're going to talk about that with Brian Laguerre, who is a seascape ecologist and manager of the Shark Ecology Program at the Center for Coastal Studies. That's a nonprofit that studies the oceans. He is based in Provincetown, Massachusetts, home of the Hobcast. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me today. Well, it's great to have you. And and just first of all, I want to give the Hobcast listeners some idea of exactly what you do there, what you study with the Center for Coastal Studies? So for me, I am a biologist in the geology department. Working in the seafloor mapping program, I map the ocean floor, but my background as a fisheries biologist is I track and I understand how fish use the environment in which they live in, uh, and that has confluence on a project where I'm studying how white sharks use shallow water on Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say you're mapping the ocean floor, what, how, how much of the ocean floor and why would you want to map it? So here on the Cape, you know, we specialize in shallow water mapping. And what we have is a very active coastline where it's constantly eroding and moving and the habitat is changing. So we go out there with a myriad of sonar equipment uh, and we actually do transect lines and map the ocean floor to see the bars and the troughs and the eelgrass and the oyster reefs so we can best manage what we have as a natural resource. We can't manage what we don't know is there. What do you mean by manage? How do you manage the ocean? So, you know, here on the Cape, a big thing is, you know, how sediment moves and sand. So if one beach is sand deprived and another beach has excess sand, you can manage it by moving sand from one place to another. And if you know how that does naturally, then we can use science to implement these best management practices. For me, understanding sharks, you know, we manage our behavior and we manage how we go into the water. So what I'm doing is looking at how the habitat and the shark behavior mix uh, in the same spaces that we share. And just to give people some background about what's been happening here, there was a shark attack. Guy had his leg severely injured there. This was a few years ago. Then a year later, somebody was killed by a great white shark uh, here in this area. And as a result of that, people are are very scared of them. So what has happened is over the past several decades, we went from a scenario where we didn't have sharks in the near shore habitat due to a history of either hunting for seals and hunting for sharks and bycatch, where now we have a scenario where these populations are recovering 
and they are now interacting with people in the shallow water environment. What this really is, is a change in culture that we have on the Cape, where we're not used to the sharks being here, where historically they were, but in our recent memory, they weren't. So we're meeting these animals in a scenario which we're not used to. And they're coming back now in bigger numbers because there are more seals, because the seals have been protected since the 1970s. Uh, correct. So Massachusetts put a, um, a protection onto the seals in the 60s, and the federal government uh, put in protections in the 70s. And then concurrently, in the 90s and early thousands, we've protected the white sharks. So these two populations recovering and repopulating these areas is a great management success story in a lot of ways. Since you now are tracking these sharks uh, off the coast here, and, and you've got these, what, sonar detectors to see where they are? Yeah, so what has happened is over the past decade, the Division of Marine Fisheries and, and the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy have been tagging a great number of sharks using what's called an acoustic pinger, an acoustic tag. And these have a code number that corresponds to a specific shark. And then we track them using hydrophones uh, to listen for those pings. Other organizations like the Division of Marine Fisheries track them on a broad scale. But what I'm doing differently here is tracking them on the fine scale down to about the meter and how they're using water between zero and about 30 feet. And you're doing that for what reason? So after the several shark incidences that have occurred over the last decade, um, there's been a lot of questions on how we move forward living with these animals. When someone comes to me as a biologist asking me, like, where should I swim? How should I swim? What types of time, these are questions we can answer with science and with understanding the animal's behavior. And that is where I come into play as a scientist, is I'm looking at how the shark's behavior in the same spaces that we share can both change our behavior to be safer and more comfortable at the beach and also create some really interesting biological information on the sharks. So do you see a world where the sharks are there and that's fine and we're there and that's fine and there's not going to be any incidents between sharks and people? Well, there's perfect examples of this uh, across the world. Uh, you know, there are still incidences where, you know, people will have, you know, negative encounters with the sharks where someone will get bit and whatnot in Southern California, in Australia, in South Africa. But what has happened there is they have lived for a very long period of time with both seal populations, shark populations, and it's a part of their local culture that sharks are there. But don't they have nets, which we don't have? Australia has places with nets and they're not as very effective. Hmm. Uh, South Africa has a shark spotting program off their cliffs, which don't really connect to the beaches that we recreate at. You know, these are very different habitats, uh, which is kind of cool from a scientist's point of view, than these other areas. So it's not going to um, translate perfectly all the management recommendations. So what, what, what is, the, what is the, the sort of dream scenario of how this all works out with the sharks and the people down the road? Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the dream scenario is per se, but I know what we can do is start answering people's concerns and questions with science. And we can look at this from a holistic behavioral point of view and say, 
ultimately like this kind of beach uh, should more or less have sharks. And this is what you can do if you want to avoid sharks. And this is what you can do if you, you know, feel like swimming in these specific areas. What happens to, if it's a shark that has been tagged that attacks a person, what happens to that shark? Is it like when a bear attacks a person and they go and kill that shark? No, um, it's going to be extremely difficult to refine and recapture a shark. Uh, the ocean is gigantic. Um, and it's not the scenario in which the same thing as a bear that becomes a problem bear on land that has is coming towards people because they know we have food. Mm -hmm. The sharks don't know we have food. The sharks had a mistake one day, and that is where a, these incidences occur. And it is a mistake, right? They don't like eating people. They're not very tasty. We're not very tasty. If they liked, you know, going after people, this would be a significantly more common scenario. Uh -huh. The amount of sharks that are in these shallow waters really speaks to the point that they are more focused on eating fishes and seals and other animals. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just to, to, for the statistics, how many shark attacks in a year are there? Globally, I think it's like three to five. Florida's the shark bite capital of the world. And, you know, I wouldn't go to Florida without getting in the water. But <laughs> right. Neither would I. Yeah. And in fact, I would I, I wouldn't even think about a shark when I was in Florida. And, and here I do all the time. Yeah. It, it, it's the again, it's that part of the culture that we haven't had in the uh, recent times. Are you afraid of sharks at all? Um, I am respectful of sharks. You know, I'm not going to be jumping in the water on the backside in 30 foot depth. It's very turbid. The you know, currents are screaming, it's cold, I like warm water. But last week I spent, you know, over 20 hours in nice blue waters in the Turks and Caicos with sharks coming feet from me. Great and white sharks? Not great whites though. You know, <laughs> okay. These were Caribbean reefs and there are sharks and other species. So I'm respectful of which species are around and which ones, you know, where I'm at. Uh-huh. I remember a trip I took many, many years ago to the Great Barrier Reef where I went diving and saw uh, several very big sharks. I don't know what kind of sharks they were, but they were, you know, a distance away from me. And I immediately, when I saw them, started swimming in the other direction. And then I took a second to think about it. And I was with a group of other people as well. And I'm like, that's so cool. I, all I want to do is get as close as I can to those sharks. Bad idea or good idea? Well, you know, I'm kind of the same way. You know, when I'm underwater on scuba gear, uh, a lot of that fear melts away because you're seeing these animals moving in their natural habitat and how much they really don't care about you. Um, and how much they may come check you out, may be a little curious, but then they realize you don't have a fish, you don't have anything that they're interested in, and you're just this weird blob blowing up bubbles. It really brings them down to, you know, their nature and watching them in, in the environment. So you've been studying sharks for how long now? So I, my first shark project was during my master's uh, in around 2009, 2010. I was looking at uh, baby sharks and looking at how lemons and black tips use two nursery habitats on St. John in the Virgin Islands. What have you learned about sharks in all of your years studying them? My favorite thing about, you know, the sharks and what we're learning is just 
how they use these different habitats, how much they're tied to the quality and the quantity and the extent of either eelgrass beds or mangroves or how they are tied to food sources like seals and dead whales and fishes and how they are you know, these amazing animals uh, and important to the ecosystem as a whole. But it's interesting because they spend some of their time in shallow waters, but they also spend a lot of their life going much further down deep, don't they? So the amazing thing about, you know, white sharks is, yes, they are aggregating here on Cape Cod during the summer. When they leave here, they are extremely individuals. You know, some of them go to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Some go all the way up to Newfoundland and all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. They're one of the widest distributed fishes in the world. And, you know, they're here for a little summertime jaunt. Which but then they just go off in their own direction. They're not traveling in packs to one of these places? No, no. They generally, uh, they're not a social animal in terms of schooling and, you know, seeking out that dependent relationship with another animal. We do believe they do interact. There might be hierarchies at times and territories, but in general, when they leave, they're leaving on their own. Uh, we don't know where they're breeding. We don't know where that type of scenario is yet, but yeah, they're individuals. Hmm. Now, I said at the beginning that we would talk about the oceans and about sharks, and I want to sort of bring that into to this a little bit more because... Over the last many years, we have heard so many stories about rising temperatures from climate change. How is that affecting what you're seeing? So the Gulf of Maine is one of the fastest warming bodies of water in the world. Um, it's temperatures are going higher every year. And what that is doing is changing the food chain, the food structure. So your plankton's going to be earlier or later or less abundant, which translates up and down the food chain, which will ultimately change, you know, the shark patterns. The shark increases on the Cape. I don't know if they're directly related to increasing temperatures and stuff like that. But if they start extending their range further and further north, that's going to be a direct indication of warmer waters and places that, you know, weren't as warm before. How fast are things changing from your perspective? Too fast, especially when we're dealing with, you know, seasonal abundances of forage fish, basically fish that other fish eat, and uh, plankton, um, when these are seasonal and things get shifted, it can really screw up things for a long period of time. So yeah, no, stuff's changing. Fast. When you say that, screw up things for a long period of time, screw up things for the sharks? Uh, well, when you're starting from the bottom up, you're going to screw up what they eat and what they eat also eats the other stuff. So it's a trickle up and trickle down effect with uh, these type of scenarios. Well, and also if, as you say, they really like certain areas, they like certain grasses and things like that. If those areas where the food uh, is for them is shifting, then they may not have the areas that they enjoy. Yeah. You know, a lot of sharks like the, especially like when I was dealing with the uh, baby sharks in the nursery habitat, these areas have high repeated use by the same cohorts over time. So the mother shark will go and pup in this area. And if that area becomes degraded over time, she's still going to pup there. But because that's becoming degraded, those 
pups may not survive as well. Hmm. And it's this scenario of like habitat destruction that we're really dealing with as well as increased temperatures. And, and what about sea level rise? Does that impact the, the, the creatures in the sea? It absolutely impacts the creatures in the sea because we have done so much to the coastlines. Um, when we're building on the coastlines and preventing natural shorelines from keeping up with sea level rise, which has happened for a significant period of time, our structures become destroyed, which destroys the habitat in the local area, which will affect the ecosystem as a whole. So are you as a scientist focusing on what's happening in Washington right now, which would be at the end of the day, you know, the biggest climate change legislation in our lifetime, certainly? Uh, we're absolutely paying attention to stuff like that because we are uh, hopeful that we can still move forward trying to understand what's going on. And a lot of climate change packages and funding actually goes to managing what's going to happen just so we can do it in a smarter way. As it's, opposed to pre preventing it. As, as opposed to preventing it, because a lot of this has been occurring for the past 150, 180 years. It's not going to change overnight. But what we need to do is start developing the science and developing the understanding better to manage our coasts so we don't go down the path you know, too fast. Manage our coasts for our own survival, for the survival of animals, for like what 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 would be the, for economic survival. What would be the the main goal, and when it comes to managing the coasts, what people get the fastest is the economic and our own thing. But it's really for it all. You know, it's managing our coasts in a climate conscious way is good for both the economy, people. And it's good for the ecosystem as a whole. As somebody who spends so much time studying this and also out on the water yourself, I mean, how many, how many days a year would you say you're out on the water? At least 50 or 60 on the water and probably another 30 plus on the beach. You know, it's, it's a chunk of time. So what do you think when you are interacting with people like me who, you know, live in this place? But don't spend near it. I've never been that far out to see, uh, you know, off of the coast of, of Massachusetts. I've, I've certainly not seen the kind of wildlife that you've seen. Do you think I'm missing a lot by not seeing that? You know, I am extremely privileged in a lot of respects with my career that I've seen some things that, you know, it, it's just really freaking cool. Uh, you know, I was out at a whale carcass in August where a 17 foot great white showed up and I was only able to be there at that point in time because of the job I had what, what I like what did the great white do oh it, it came eating. cruised by the boat and it gave us a little show and then was you know chewing on the whale a little bit and it was one of the coolest sights I've seen um everything from that to you know looking at grouper spawning aggregations and places I've been to are just amazing and I love coming back back and chatting with you know people at the bar and in town and the whole nine yards and answering the questions because a big part of the science is the communication and the outreach that we do and we're not always the best at that why is that because we're not trained to do that you know we're trained to understand the animal uh, the shark and the statistics those don't go hand in hand with communication skills right.
Right. Not everybody is is a Neil deGrasse Tyson scientist who can easily, you know, convey things to the masses. No, it's it's very hard to not create definitive statements that aren't supported by the data and the fact that science moves so slow, which is we've all learned this over the last two years with this pandemic, is it's very difficult to make a scientific statement to the public audience that it has to be supported by your numbers or you can't make that statement, even though you kind of know what's going to happen until that point. In your case, I imagine that the people that really want you to get your information out there about how we can live safely with sharks are those who, who, you know, want the tourism economy in this area to do very well. Yeah. You know, so it's the, the surfers, the recreational beachgoer, the tourism, everyone has some concept of what we should do about sharks, what we shouldn't do about sharks and, and opinion on, you know, how we should move forward. My job as a scientist is to remove myself from some of the emotion, some of the thing, and just look at what the questions are and try to come up with data behind that. What do people say we should do about sharks that, that makes no sense to you? Uh, well, you know, culling doesn't make sense to me. That's one thing that just from a, you know, we've managed these animals for the population to come back. Um, Having apex predators in the ecosystem helps keep a stable, healthy ecosystem. And culling just doesn't work. We've looked at it elsewhere, especially with animals that have such a broad ranging movement and you know, population numbers that can be uh, reduced very quickly uh, can be a problem. Even culling seals to keep the sharks away, that wouldn't be a good idea. Well, the seal population that we're talking about, there's 30 plus thousand seals on Cape Cod at any one point in time. They're part of a population that is around half a million between Long Island and Newfoundland. And they've traveled between Cape Cod and Newfoundland within a week. So if we're talking about culling seals for the purpose of reducing sharks, that probably isn't a sustainable scenario for the seals. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily make sense to me to move that route. What is the one big question you still have that you'd like to answer? Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm curious to see if how well we can start really predicting where these animals are uh, because they are so individualistic. They are so, you know, large and traveling in such great areas. But, you know, looking at the data preliminarily, you know, there are some patterns that are starting to arise and it's going to be very fun and very informative to start, you know, communicating that out in the public in the next couple of years. Is there any marine creature that you've not seen that you would really like to? Oh, dozens, uh, dozens. Like you know, what? Uh, well, last week I just saw a batfish for the first time and it was amazing. What is a batfish? Uh, this weird pancake looking animal that has feet almost uh, and walking around in Sandy Habitat and mm. Turks and Caicos. Uh, it was a blast. Uh, the more sharks I can knock off my list, the better. You know, it, every time you see one, it's just an amazing thing. That is Brian Laguerre, who is a seascape ecologist and manager of the Shark Ecology Program at the Center for Coastal Studies. Uh, and I thank you for listening to the Hobcast. Hope you come back next time when we are going to have, this is all I'm going to say, a amazing tale of survival 
on the next Hobcast. So tune in for that. Please rate this Hobcast. Please share it with your friends. And I will talk to you next week. I'm Jeremy Hobson. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Hobson.